Hi everyone, it's Casper here. We've got some fabulous live shows coming up that we hope you'll be able to join us for. We're in Cambridge, Massachusetts on October 2nd, Washington DC on November 7th, Chicago, Illinois, where my uncle was born, on November 21st, and St. Louis on December 19th. We hope to see you there. Chapter 7. The Slug Club. Harry spent a lot of the last week of the holidays pondering the meaning of Malfoy's behaviour in Nocturne Alley. What disturbed him most was the satisfied look on Malfoy's face as he had left the shop. Nothing that made Malfoy look that happy could be good news. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. One of the great soap operas that I have never seen is called Dallas. And you know what else is called Dallas? The city where we have a Harry Potter and the Sacred Text local group. It's run by the amazing Ari Lazaro and has a fabulous crew of people who get together to talk about the book and to do sacred reading together. And if you're in the Dallas area, we really hope you might check them out as well. You can find out all the details on our website at harrypottersacredtext.com forward slash groups. And for those of you who are interested in joining us on our pilgrimages, we have our Virginia Wolf one is open for registration. Our Emily Dickinson pilgrimage in Amherst, Massachusetts is open for registration. And on September 16th, our Weathering Heights pilgrimage in the West York Moors is going to open for registration. So go to readingandwalkingwith.com. And I really hope to see you on one of our fantastic pilgrimages. Vanessa, it's time for a story. What have you got for us this week? So Casper, on my very first day of classes in college, I was in this class, this English class, and the most handsome man I had ever seen in my life walked in. He was six foot five and just like tall, dark and handsome. I just thought he was so beautiful. Anyway, not to brag, but by the end of the year, he was my boyfriend and I had lived on an all girls floor and the very last day of the year, he was going to pick me up in his topless Jeep Wrangler and drive me home to California for the summer. And this became like a floor wide event. There was a lot of talking about what I should wear and that I should be in this cute dress that I had, even though I thought I should be in like jeans and a T-shirt because it was going to be windy. And the girls on my floor were like, no, you have to wear this. And there was just like a lot of fanfare and excitement about like packing me up and making sure that I was ready for this like very exciting moment. And then a couple of girls from my floor like walked me downstairs and he pulled up in his Jeep and they all hugged me goodbye. And I got into this like cool car with this handsome tall man who I was in love with and he threw my suitcase in the back and we waved goodbye and you know drove off into the sunset and then of course everybody knows where this is going I of course should have worn pants my knees got sunburnt it was like cold and uncomfortable in the car we got rained on at one point we arrived in Santa Fe that night completely sunburnt and exhausted and like my hair was all tangled and of course it like was not nearly as glamorous as it seemed for those 30 seconds but the other thing that is interesting to me about it is that I remember knowing right that like every glamorous choice I made was dumb I remember knowing like I should not be in a dress I should 
definitely be wearing a baseball hat and slathering like zinc oxide level SPF 80 sunscreen on myself. And I just was so willing to objectify myself in order to feel glamorous in these other people's eyes that I didn't care. And just like eight hours later, it felt so dumb that for those 30 seconds, I was willing to do that to myself. And I think that that is part of what is so interesting about glamour is that it's actually a process of self-objectification. And I think we see that in like every Hollywood starlet, right, who is willing to go through any sort of rigmarole in order to be the object of envy and to be seen as glamorous in the world. And I think nobody knows that better than Harry, right, who is seen as glamorous through everybody's eyes and would do anything to not be objectified. And I'm, I'm just really interested in that aspect of glamour, when we are complicit in trying to make ourselves seem glamorous to the outside world and what we have to sacrifice in order to do it. I'm so struck by that, Vanessa. I, I, yeah, that there's a kind of a thinness to glamour, right? Like you always think about these photographs that seem iconic and imagine just turning the lens the other way and you, you see like, actually, it's a really like grotty bathroom or someone has to awkwardly stand on five extra books to be the right height or, you know, it, th- there's that idea of kind of moving the lens and you see that the truth behind the glamour. That really resonates. Also, your story totally reminds me of that scene in Bridget Jones's diary where her hat flies off. So I'm really glad you didn't wear a hat. That was good thinking. (laughs) (laughs) I was not glad that night as I was Uh. made him stop at like CVS to buy me aloe vera for my face. (laughs) And like I still have freckles on my nose that I'm pretty sure are from that trip. (laughs) Well, before we dive into Glamour, let's do a 30-second recap. And this was a fun little chapter, so I'm excited to see what we've got. And I think it's my turn to go first. Okay. On your mark. Get set. Go. Okay, so Harry is totally obsessed with Malfoy. What's in, what else is new? And um, and because Malfoy is a Death Eater, thinks Harry because they were, like he was showing something to Borgen, who's like, oh my god, it was the Dark Mark, and like Madame Malfoy, Madame Malkin was about to see his arm, and so um, Harry's really obsessed. But Ron Hermione having none of it. Then they go to the station and they get on the train, and um, Ron Hermione are prefects, and so Harry's like, okay, I'll sit like by myself with Ginny. Oh no, Ginny has a boyfriend. Oh no, I feel complicated feelings. And then sits with Luna, and then uh, there's an attack, and then he's. Th- dead no not quite but <laughs> that's why i'm glad we're a team because you're, you're up for your 30 seconds okay three two one go so the other thing that happens is that harry and neville get these like pieces of parchment inviting them to slughorn's compartment and they go and it's the first slug club meeting and um slughorn somehow already knows who is well connected of the hogwarts students and um and he and Ginny is there and it turns out that Ginny is there because she did a really good bogey hacks and so slughorn like sort of cares about meritocracy and sort of doesn't and then you go (laughs) and you hear draco debrief all the things that um that he's showing off to the other Slytherins. Yeah, it's an intense ending. Like Harry is lying there, crippled. His nose is broken because Malfoy stamped on his face. The warm, oozing blood covers his mouth. And then luckily Tonks finds him. But that's the next chapter. Yeah, it is a brutal ending. And I just, I feel so 
suffocated by it, right? Like once it's under the invisibility cloak and when Malfoy's like, they won't find you till London, I was like, ugh! See, I feel suffocated by some douchey guy following me around in an invisibility cloak, whatever I do and wherever I go. Can't I just have some privacy? This is like Facebook snooping, but in the magical world. Are you Draco in this? I feel some sympathy. Why don't we start there? Let Tell me a little bit about you seeing yourself in Draco and what you thought about him. I mean, to kind of zoom out a little bit, like I feel like what I really got from Draco in this chapter, especially as it relates to glamour, is that there's an element of danger to glamour. I, th- I think there's something intriguing about power and about status and about um, even physical danger, which is really showing up for Draco, right? He's talking about that he, you know, has been given this big job and maybe he's not coming back to Hogwarts next year. And and he's all but saying that he's a Death Eater. And so often in stories, you know, like the baddie is the best dressed. I don't know. I think there's something about power and danger and, and even malice that has this kind of glamour to it. Well, it's cool. If you're willing to do terrible things, that means that you like don't care what society thinks and you're just willing to go your own way. And for Malfoy, it's wrapped up with money and the fact that, I don't know, Malfoy is superior in so many social status ways to everyone else on the train, even though like his dad is an Azkaban. And I found it really interesting to think about, because glamour can be such a at least in our culture, is seen as such a positive thing. It made me see like, oh, this is glamorous, but in a really scary, not good way. Well, and he has just been given this task that is actually terrifying him, right? I mean, he's objectifying himself and Mm. he's almost being his own hype man and his own PR person, right? He's (laughs) like, that's what makes him glamorous. He has his own PR team. (laughs) Yeah, it's just a PR team of one and it is Draco Malfoy. (laughs) But he is like, oh, I was given a special assignment by the Dark Lord and he's not showing any of the underbelly of it. And we know, right, that he's like going to be crying to Moaning Myrtle in just a few chapters doing the least cool thing ever, right? Crying in a girl's bathroom to a depressed ghost. Like, (laughs) he would be really embarrassed if he got caught doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So he's only showing that veneer in exactly that way that we've been thinking about glamour. I think that's what was so interesting in this last season of Game of Thrones. There was like a coffee cup on screen that wasn't caught by the, um, you know, the special effects department or whatever who remasters the images. And it kind of like broke this glamorous image of this other world because there was such an ordinary thing in the middle of it. And it was it was both funny, but it was also, I think underneath the humor, there was like sadness that like, oh, actually this isn't real. <laughs> like these are actors and they need coffee because it's 6am when they're shooting this. And you, you see that it's not at all glamorous, which is maybe why we want to you know, when people get built up as celebrities or politicians or whatever, like we want to drag them down again because it's too insulting for them to live in that higher state for too long, right? Because we know that our lives are not like that because you have to wake up at, you know, whatever, 3 a.m. to deal with a screaming child or you have to stay late to get that thing done, whatever it is. 
I, I think we have an impulse to like rip off the the facade and and that's what i like uh, i mean obviously i do not like the physical violence but that's what i like about what draco's response is here he is not doing this in front of everyone else right this is a major turn for draco he's not confronting harry with his own minions next to him he's not making a show of it like this is personal and he just wants to pull harry down a peg he doesn't even you know at this point perhaps Draco is capable of much more violence than he's even doing, right? Like, Harry is completely defenseless. It's It seems like this is just a personal getting Harry down a peg rather than really trying to do long-term damage. Sure. <laughs> I just, I cannot imagine stomping on someone's face. Yeah, yeah that's totally fair. <laughs> it just seems like such a radically violent act to me. And of course, this is a very angry young man, right? Like his father has just been put in prison. Yeah. He's being raised to believe in wizard supremacy. And he is terrified that he has been put on a suicide mission. So mm -hmm. the fact that Draco has a lot of anger in his life makes sense to me. But this seems like an act of rage. And he has just foisted all of that rage onto Harry. Well, it's also interesting that he's, well, obviously our faces are extremely vulnerable, but there's also something interesting that Harry's most defining feature is, of course, his scar on his forehead. And in some ways, that's the sign of his glamour, right? Like that this is the most recognizable, media-worthy, showy part of Harry, which he did not choose. And he tries to hide with his hair. Like this is not Harry's fault, but it it, it was interesting for me to think about that boot kind of going to Harry's face as, as the place of most recognizable glamour in some way. But you're absolutely right. Like that, that violence is indefensible, even if it's understandable, there's no excuse for it. But it feels different to the kind of violence that we've seen. I think that's, that's what I'm trying to say. Like that there's something about defacing the glamour of Harry about this rather than about trying to show off or, or level up Draco's status. It's about tearing Harry down. I just think that we also see that all of the quote unquote glamorous things about Harry also puts a target on his back, right? Or a target mm. on his forehead, right? Like he does not want to be fighting this war. He does not want to be, you know, the one going to the ministry and seeing his godfather die. And I think that that, again, is always true about glamour. Glamour is about making yourself shiny, right? And it's mm. about making yourself stick out. And it is always a double-sided coin when you make yourself stick out. And so I think anything that's shiny like a, you know, like a lightning bolt is also a scar and a target for derision and projection. And positive attention becomes negative attention almost immediately. Well, and I think we see that really clearly with the Slug Club, because most of the people who've been invited there, exactly as you're saying, are invited because the shiny part in their life, it, frankly, mostly, is, is a relative, right? We hear about a famous uncle or a famous mother or a famous, right, which has obviously given them maybe access to like Quidditch matches or really beautiful looks or whatever it is, but actually feels extremely hollow. And it struck me how switched on to that all of the students we hear from are like Blaise Zabini, the first commentary he gives was like, oh, he just wanted wanted to meet me because of my mom. 
And so we've seen that with Harry throughout the books, but it, it, now we're seeing all of these other characters feel the same way. The only exception to that is Ginny. And that was really interesting to me because she performs this hex on Zachariah Smith, who's also been in the DA, but is annoying her. And so her reaction is like, okay, hex you. Um, and Slughorn sees it happening and like walks in and is about to tell her off, but then doesn't and instead invites her to the club. But for everyone else, the invitation is pretty hollow. Well, even for Harry, what it is is his trauma, right? And I was just thinking, it made me think of all of the ways that we glamorize people's trauma. It's like he's a war hero. And it's like, sure, but being a war hero means that you experienced and witnessed incredible violence. And in order to get people to do these heroic things, we sort of promise them glamour upon their return. And I especially think because so much of the trauma is so fresh for Harry, like imagine being objectified for trauma that you in no way signed up for. It got assigned to you when you were one year old. You witnessed Cedric die a year ago. And then three months ago, you witnessed your godfather die. And like this has just been a series of tragedies in your life. And now you're like being offered like cold pheasant for it it's like no (laughs) thank you i don't want this glamour yeah it felt like you know how how children who are famous actors then really struggle often as adults there's something about a weight of glamour right like if you're known for being glamorous you can't ever show up in a, a grocery store without full makeup and hair and everything else right like if if there's just a tiny hole in that veneer the whole thing feels like it comes crashing down i feel that weightiness for him here and yeah this humility is just so it's so honest and even if it wasn't honest it's a necessary survival tactic because you know once you start believing the hype you have to believe everything that is said about you and and he manages to avoid that somehow even in this chapter without Ron and Hermione by his side, who are nearly always the things that, or the people that keep him grounded. I I just have huge respect for Harry in this chapter. I love the moment at the very beginning of the chapter where he's so relieved to see Neville. And I think part of it is that he has like forgotten that he has friends other than Ron and Hermione. (laughs) And like for all the glamour and popularity and fame that people project onto him, he still really sees himself as a loner with two friends at most. Well, I think it's even more complicated than that because that moment comes straight after him wanting to sit next to Ginny. So I think he's also feeling a little like this is a moment of rejection for him because Ginny, you know, just said like, no, I'm going to sit with my boyfriend. So I think that moment with with Neville is even more important. It's it's not only about friends, but it's also about like something, something more of like, oh, I'm still wanted. You know what I mean? Yeah, which is even sadder. It's just as we're going to see people like Romilda think that he's like too glamorous to even sit with Luna and Neville. Whereas we've just seen this moment where he's had a moment of like, I have no one in the world to sit with. Ron and Hermione are prefects. Ginny has a boyfriend and I am completely alone. And so how different people's projections of us are than, right, like than the lived reality my students last year, you know, when, when I was sick and so sort of missing a lot, they mm. had projected this whole story that I was like always off with my boyfriend. <laughs> and I was like, I was home in bed. <laughs> right? Like they had just like the fact that I was 
not present had created this like little bit of space for mystery and they were like oh Vanessa she's probably off having you know glamorous weekends and I was like super no (laughs) but yeah it's the stories that we tell about one another it's easy to look shiny on the outside yeah it's interesting that like any gap in information can create to all sorts of stories right like that we can we can glamorize or valorize or denigrate people that we live next to or even with as soon as there's a tiny gap in information. Like our brains are storytelling brains and we can't just be like, oh, this person is gone blank, <laughs> right? Like we have to fill it with something. Perhaps this is this is part of being human is that we always just think other people's stories are more interesting than our own. I mean, I find myself doing it with my neighbors. You know, I walk around the neighborhood a lot with my dog And I'll look at a beautiful garden and I'll be like, that person must really love gardening. It's like, (laughs) I don't know that they love it. They're just more willing to put their hands in the dirt than I am. Right. But I immediately tell myself a story that it's easier for them than it would be for me. And it's just not true. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the place where we're all familiar with this, right, is Instagram or social media, where where it is so much about self-presentation and Part of it is fun. Like, I don't want to lose the fun of glamour, which which is, you know, that's partly why we do it. And and part of it is about allowing ourselves to daydream and and allow ourselves to live in a different narrative. Because sometimes our own narratives are like pretty bad, <laughs> like or or at least boring or hard. Or I mean, drag as an art is all about make believe and about usually people who are pushed to the very margins of society. And you think about the kind of ball culture, right? Like it was mostly black, like nearly often homeless youth creating these very extravagant moments where they got to be the queen, right? They got to be royalty. Like you got to live a life that would seem completely out of reach. And there has to be space for that because that also helps us find hope and, and courage and community. And so I guess the line is, you know, when when is it a dangerous, fake, you know, constructed reality which hurts us? And when is it this like uplifting moment of joy? Yeah, I think with my opening story, right, like I had been such a dork in middle school and high school. And it was important for me to feel like boys that I thought were attractive found me attractive. And to see myself for a moment in other people's eyes, I think it was mm-hmm. a good confidence booster. I also think that it like increased my chances of skin cancer. And so, (laughs) and like, I don't think that it was worth it, but I do think it was nice to tell myself this story of like, I'm allowed the glamorous moment too, even though I'm any number of things, short with frizzy hair and glasses. And you know, like I also am allowed to have a man who I'm in love with pick me up in a cool car and like whisk me off. Maybe that's the thing, Vanessa, is it's about how often do those moments come? Like, I'm I'm wondering if that's the way that glamour doesn't become dangerous is that it does happen once a year, all right? Or once every five years. So that it has this like, this sweet memory rather than like every day I have to be perfect in air quotes because any time that I can be seen not to be like this is dangerous. And instead, if it's like, Oh, I am who I am. And you can see me in my pajamas. But on this Wednesday in June, wow, I was something else. You know, I think Dumbledore would approve of that ratio. 
Well, and is it something that you are opting into or that is entirely foisted upon you? Yes. Which I think, and for Harry, he is a victim of his own glamorous status. He has not opted into this at all. He did That's not right. put his name in the Goblet of Fire. Like, this is just happening to him again and again and again. And the only form of glamour that he chose was being on the Quidditch team. And he does enjoy those celebrations of him, right? Like, those are the only times that we see him happy to be the center of attention and really reveling in it. And that's because he had a little bit of agency in that glamour. This really made me think, this whole chapter of, like, what what are the glamorous moments for our trio, right? We remember the Yule Ball for Hermione. is this moment where, you know, she's unrecognizable, the text tells us, which is problematic in various ways. But that, it is a moment where, where Hermione really shines, not for her intellect, but because she's beautiful. And what a wonderful moment that can be. For Ron, it's that moment on the Quidditch pitch, right? Like when he is lifted up as Weasley as our king and, and that narrative is reclaimed. And for Harry, I feel like the moments of real glamour are more complicated. I wonder if it's even away from the Quidditch pitch. Like, what, what, where do you think the moments of, like, true glamour are for Harry? I mean, I just think it's all of the little moments where there's something unique about him that he has chosen. So the fact that he works hard on, you know, conjuring a Patronus with Lupin, I do think it's, yes. it's like a moment of real pride. I don't know if it's glamorous, yes. but, you know, the first time he conjures a Patronus in front of the whole DA, yeah. like, that's real joy and pride for him. And, and in the exam room as well. Yeah, yeah. That's really cool. Right. His stag takes a victory lap. And I so I just think that the moments where he's actually had to work hard in order to succeed, there's something sweeter about that. Yeah, and I think it's about the audience that he has in those moments are people that he cares about. While so much of the time when he's lauded and celebrated are in front of people he he doesn't know or certainly doesn't respect. And each of those moments you pointed to, right, whether it's the DA or Lupin, right, like it matters what these people think of him to him. And I, I, that's a really beautiful Beautiful way to think about glamour. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Quip. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text listeners, I don't want to scare you, but three members of the Not Sorry Productions team have recently lost a tooth. Now, none of this was because of bad brushing. It was because of accidents that happened. But I am concerned about people who love Harry Potter and their teeth. Quip's electric toothbrush can help you in your routine of keeping your teeth healthy and sparkling clean. The mirror mount for your Quip toothbrush puts brushing front and center in your bathroom, so you'll remember to bookend the day using your new brush. The built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides and help you clean your whole mouth makes sure that you brush for the entire two minutes. The multi-use cover is amazing, it works as a stand, and also helps with sanitary reasons. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5. A friendly reminder as to when it's time to refresh and stay committed to your oral health. Please, this is a public service announcement from somebody who has all of her teeth and who loves a lot of people who have recently lost one tooth. Brush your teeth. Quip makes it easy and fun to brush your teeth, and that is why I love Quip. 
and why it's perfect for getting back into a routine after the summer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash Harry Potter right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at getquip.com slash Harry Potter. My brother and sister-in-law have a fig tree, and it makes me sad because I live 3,000 miles away from the fig tree, and I love figs. I think they are like proof of a higher being. Now, I resent them less because due to Fleur's amazing Hanami scent, I get to smell like the fig tree. They make stunning, non-toxic perfumes, and they list all of their ingredients online. You get a good scent made with clean ingredients. And the sample process is just good old fun. Here at Harry Potter and Sacred Text, we actually got to put together our own floor sample set filled with our favorite scents. So if you're not sure where to start, make sure that you check that out. And definitely try to smell like my brother and sister-in-law's fig tree with the Hanami scent. Then when I meet you, I'll love you more because you'll smell like home. Go to Fleur.com slash Harry Potter today to check out our curated sample set and get 20% off of your first custom Fleur sample set. That's P-H-L-U-R dot com slash Harry Potter to get your first three Fleur fragrance samples at 20% off. Fleur.com slash Harry Potter. You know, this whole conversation about glamour reminds me of one of my very favorite people, John O'Donohue, who is an Irish poet and he makes this really interesting point about the difference between beauty and glamour. And he he describes, right, like as anyone would think about glamour as, you know, the front page of, of glossy magazines, right? These big billboard advertisements. And he says, beauty is the faces of the people I love rather than these faces that are kind of anonymous or celebrity faces that have been retouched and, you know, everything is perfect about them. What, what I like about that that helps us understand glamour better is that there's often no relationship that true beauty is about, you know, something that's obviously more than skin deep, but it's about shared experience. It's about affinity, about about care, about courage and commitment to one another in a way that glamour is always going to be cold in a way. I mean, that m- makes me think about your story at the very beginning. Like, I don't know about this particular boyfriend, but I... He was so hot. And that's real. And that's great. And I hope everyone has a really hot partner at some point in their life, right? And I dated someone who was like, everything I would have wanted physically. But like after a couple of months, I was bored because there wasn't really anything more there. I just, I think that's a helpful way to think about that difference between glamour and, and true beauty. Yeah, I often wonder that about my friends. Sometimes I worry that I'm shallow because all of my friends are so great looking. And then I'm like, oh, or do I just love my friends? And so I'm biased and think they're all the best looking people. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think when we get to know people, they become more beautiful. Like when we know someone's story, you know, even the lines on their face, right? Or the clothes that they choose to wear, like we just understand. And we see them through the eyes of love rather than the eyes of like status ranking. And I think that's what that's what helps us find beauty is when we see them through through those eyes. Except you. I became friends with you because you're so handsome. <laughs> 
Okay, final point, Vanessa, which is we have talked so much about the house system throughout this podcast, and it really struck me reading this time. This is one of the very few times that we have a small group of students together in a cross-house context, right? We are really meeting Blaise Zabini for the first time as an individual. We're, we're meeting two new characters who are, you know, older than Harry, who we've, we've never heard from before. Yeah, it just struck me that for all its problems that we that we have with the Slug Club, it, it is actually a powerful moment for students to encounter one another in a context where they could form relationships across houses. Yeah, my only problem with the Slug Club is the admission criteria. <laughs> Which is a big deal. <laughs> Which is the deal, right? Like that is the problem. But gathering students in an entirely social way across houses, bonding with like a potential mentor, like spending time intergenerationally in an informal way, breaking bread together. It is actually a good moment of pedagogy, except for the fact that it's done for this really exploitative, you know, disgusting reason. Well, and I think actually Slughorn is missing a beat because most of the students that he's bringing in, even if they were talented, even if they did have something extraordinary about them, which I'm sure they do, he doesn't get to them because he's coming at questions with like, tell me about your uncle, tell me about your mother, right? He's missing the gifts that these students have to give. And I wonder what if he chose, you know, a random selection of students and spent that hour and a half, or it sounds like more than that, uh, in the time together to try and learn, you know, what is the passion that the student have? What is the gift? What is the incredible talent that, that, that these people have? I think his address book would grow much, much broader and much, much more enthusiastically than his current strategy. So I, I think he's mistaking glamour for beauty, right? He's seeing the students through the eyes of, of their most famous relative rather than trying to find the thing about them that, you know, might really make them famous or particularly wonderful in, yeah. in the public eye. Yeah, he's objectifying them rather than right. seeing them for their natural gifts right. and and trials and tribulations, right? We know that yeah. like one of the ways that we can bond with one another is by actually sharing the things that we're scared of, by you know oh, sharing our so vulnerabilities. True. And that is not happening in this in this no. group. No one is sharing their vulnerabilities. It's like a bad book club. There's no Chardonnay. <laughs> So Vanessa, it's time for our spiritual practice, and I'm so excited that we're doing Lectio Divina. And I'm putting my thumb on a random page in this chapter, and the sentence that I have chosen is this. Before he could respond, however, there was a disturbance outside their compartment door. Before he could respond, however, there was a disturbance outside their compartment door. So you're going to do step one. <laughs> it is a slightly mysterious line. It's just when Romilda Vane and this group of fourth year girls is about to knock on the carriage door and say, like, come sit with us. You don't need to sit with them. So it's this this sweet kind of tender moment between really an alternative trio, I think, in terms of Neville, Luna and Harry and the kind of intrusion of, you know, People who are two years younger than Harry. I mean, this Romilda Vane has guts. Like, I appreciate her a lot. Like, just going up to a guy that you probably like who's two years older than you, who's sitting with two other people and being like, oh, you shouldn't sit with them. Come sit with us. <laughs> Definitely bold. 
<laughs> okay, so let's think about step two, which is to think about the allegories that might be contained within this line. What stories or songs or wisdom sayings does this remind us of? But before he could respond, however, there was a disturbance outside their compartment door. I mean, I'm thinking of all of the doorways, right? The mm. standing right outside of a doorway, choosing whether or not to go in it. And then also the sort of expression of like the calls coming from inside the house. I wonder if to some extent for Harry, like he needs this knock to come on the door in order for him to be sure that Neville and Luna are who he wants to be with. Like, I think that he actually wanted to sit with Ginny, Hermione or Ron. And I think that once there's a knock on the door. He's like, no, actually, I want to be with Neville and Luna. And so I think sometimes being challenged by the outside can give us the courage of our convictions and actually make us realize that we are where we want to be. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it it is awkward for him, right? Because Neville's talking about his grandmother again, like celebrating Harry in all these ways. And and Luna has these kind of very disarming, honest moments. It it draws this really polarity between, you know, who do I want to be? For me, what came up this summer, I was in Holland and I visited a really striking museum. You know, many people will know the story of Anne Frank, but of course there were many families that were in hiding and, me- and many people who hid them. And this was a, a, a woman, a Dutch woman who was the, uh, the first licensed female watchmaker in Holland, a woman called Corrie ten Boom, um, who hid about 800 people, both Jews and, and resistance workers. And what really struck me in that story was that in this kind of guided tour that we, we got walking around her, you know, pretty small house, really the first 25 minutes of the hour long tour were about her life before the war. And that actually the point that the guide was trying to make was like, who you are in the moment of crisis is who you have always been. And I I mean, it was literally the story that we started this whole podcast project with about that little town in France, Le Chambon sur Lignon. And it strikes me that that's true about Harry in this moment as well, right? He is given a choice and he chooses the choice that he has always chosen. He's chosen Ron. He's chosen even... (laughs) (laughs) even when Luna and Neville were like, we're coming with you to the ministry. And he's like, oh boy, but like, this is who I've got. Like, let's go. You know, it's, it's a small moment in the whole story, but it shows us who Harry is. And I I love that because we all choose every day who we are. Well, and he says it back to Luna and Neville, right? Mm. Where he's like, they didn't come with me to the ministry. You did. That's right. They are not having their service be honored. And he is honoring their service. He is saying, Mm. it mattered to me that you came, even though I super didn't want you to come at the time. (laughs) Um, The fact that you came matters. It makes me teary eyed. I'm just like, oh, he's so good. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Stage three in Lexio, as you all know by now, is to think about what in our own lives reminds us of this moment on the page. What experiences have we had that resonates? Before he could respond, however, there was a disturbance outside their compartment door. I mean, what it reminds me of is that I again and again sort of choose to live in these places of chaos. And then I... I, I tell myself a story that like, if only I could have some quiet then, but like, obviously I like being disturbed by someone (laughs) right outside my door. And I think I just need to embrace that about myself, that I'm a collaborative worker Mm -hmm. and that 
my front and back door are just always open and everyone is always going to know where the key is. And like, obviously that is the way that I like to live my <laughs> life. And, and that that's a virtue, right? I just, I mm. think I'm like, I am a creative person. I should be alone in the woods. But like, actually, when I'm alone in the woods, I get depressed and just like binge watch Netflix. So <laughs> it's actually really good for me to be around people. And I think I just need to embrace that about myself. Oh, I love that, Vanessa. Yeah. What about you, Casper? It's really interesting to me. I think I learned a lesson the hard way this summer. As everyone knows, I like to plan and I like to like book things ahead of time and schedule, schedule, schedule. And it means that I'm often making decisions now for things that are way, way, way down the line. And it really strikes me that in the text we have, before he could respond, however, there was a disturbance outside their compartment door. So like Harry's response is interrupted by something else happening. He's not delaying his response. And I think I find it really, really hard to say oh, I'm not going to respond to this email. Or actually, I'm going to go to this meeting without knowing everything because I can learn more after the meeting. I, I find it very difficult not to activate straight away. And it seems that in, in this moment, the only way Harry is, is interrupted is by other people delaying him. And I feel like that is often <laughs> the way that I have to do it until I build my own capacity for the kind of true insight of knowing when to act rather than just to like, I have everything. Okay, I'm going to act right now. Because it means that you, for example, book an Airbnb six months in advance and then have to have really awkward travel schedules. <laughs> like what I did this summer. <laughs> okay, well, let us think about the final stage. So this is really uh, allowing ourselves to listen to what the text is asking of us. Is there an action that we might take? Something small, something big, something that the text is helping us remember to do. Before he could respond, however, there was a disturbance outside their compartment door. It's a small thing, but living in a big city, it's very easy to become very kind of blasé about disturbances that happen around you, whether it's on public transit or on the street or, or you know, in a neighboring house, because there are just frankly so many people and it can become overwhelming to pay attention to everything. But this, I don't know, there's something in this text that makes me feel like I, I don't want to become dehumanized. Um, even if 99 times out of 100, like it's nothing worth paying attention to, I, I don't want to miss that one time. So I want to, I want to remember that as I take the bus home later. How about you, Vanessa? I think the thing it remind it calls me to is to knock on more doors. I think I often mm. tell myself a story that I like don't want to disturb people. Mm. But I don't know. I like being <laughs> disturbed. <laughs> and I think that Harry has this clarifying moment by being disturbed. And we, you know, think Romilda Vane sort of sucks, but we also applaud her brazenness. So I don't know. I think I should feel more confident about knocking on doors. Yeah. And who knows? It might help someone remember who their real friends are. Yeah. They might be like, not you, Vanessa. <laughs> and I will have given them the gift of the opportunity to reject me. <laughs> this week's voicemail is from Hong Yua. I'm Hong Yua, a 17-year-old from Massachusetts. I was recently listening to your Beetle at Bay episode, where you explored the theme of defiance. I was especially touched by your discussion of Cho Chang's need to talk about Cedric's death. 
As someone of Chinese descent myself, who has had personal experience with how traditional Chinese culture treats grief, I have always been intrigued by Cho's relationship with death. When I was nine years old, my grandmother died from lung cancer three days after the start of Chinese New Year. My mother was torn between her own need to grieve and traditional Chinese custom demanding her to avoid talking or even thinking about death. Many family members shamed my mother during this time for visibly showing her grief during a holiday that emphasizes luck. I too was bothered by my mother's anger and sadness that she defiantly exhibited. After listening to your conversation about Cho, I have become more understanding of what my mother was going through. I wish that my other family members and I had been more supportive of my mother and her pain. In the episode, Casper contemplated whether or not Cho had had anyone to talk to at home. If Cho grew up in a traditional Chinese household, then the answer would unfortunately most likely be no. Furthermore, in 1996, Chinese New Year started only five days after Valentine's Day. Considering these musings, I now think it was so brave of Cho to show her grief, especially during a holiday season. Hong Yua, this is amazing detective work. I love that you've looked at the dates. This is so cool. And I, I really appreciate both you educating us, but also just the reflection that it's it's instilled for you to think about your own experience differently. And I don't know, my experience is not universal, but the older I get, the more I realize like my mom actually got nearly everything right. <laughs> and so if you're on the same boat, I get it. It's painful, but you'll get through it. <laughs> I also just want to thank you for your brilliant close reading. You are putting rabbis to shame. I'm incredibly impressed. And yeah, thank you for modeling the gifts that close reading can give us. It also reminds me that we catch a glimpse of Cho in this chapter. It's a very small uh, moment where, you know, people are coming out to look at Harry. And Cho is one of the few people who actually turns away from him and turns to her friend, Marietta, who is still covered. Still scarred! Still scarred. I mean, we are months, months later, and and it's still visible on her face. You know, I, I I'm thinking about Cho's loyalty and I'm thinking about Cho's deep commitment to friendship. So I'm I'm grateful that we're getting this opportunity to kind of zoom the camera back to Cho. So Casper, we now each get to bless somebody from the pages of this chapter. Who would you like to bless this week? So <laughs> I wanna bl- I wanna bless Blaze Zabini. In part because I really like his name and I I have a spreadsheet of potential baby names. I feel like Blaze should be on there. So just for that, maybe it's a blessing for his parents for choosing great names. But I don't know. I, I also, he's illustrative of everyone who showed up in the slug club, you know, except for Ginny, as we talked about, because he's being wanted for for someone else, right? I think so many of us can identify with that feeling of of, you know, being invited somewhere because of who you're married to, right? Like if you're a plus one, that's your experience. Even at a wedding or, or, or at a birthday party, it can feel hollow. And I, I just, I just felt for Blaze and all, and all the other students who get that hollow feeling. That's never how you want to feel when you're invited somewhere. And it's a reminder for me, you know, as we host things, to really try and commit to an, a genuine engagement with every person and not just see people as you know arm candy or or, or wallpaper. Yeah, everybody, stop seeing me as Casper's arm candy. (laughs) I think that's firmly the other way around. How about you, Vanessa? I want to bless Luna for 
after Romilda says, you know, like, come sit with us, and Harry says no, Luna says she thinks you should have cooler friends than us. And I just want to bless her for her truth speaking. And it is like not said in a tone of self-pitying. It is it is just like in order for us to be friends, we have to say things as they are and acknowledge the harsh truths. And it makes Harry uncomfortable and she is just fine with it. I think that truth speaking is a really hard thing to do and can be so freeing. And I just think that, you know, we think of Luna as a quote unquote free spirit, but I actually think she frees other people by speaking so plainly. And so I want to bless her for that amazing gift that she has. Yeah, I that's one thing I hope that as I get older, I can become more like Luna in this respect, like just saying it how it is. It can be such a gift, exactly as you're saying. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about the episode. Come and join our nearly 1,300 people who are supporting us on Patreon. There are new perks, including a Mute Me in Majorca sticker for $5 <laughs> and up and an enamel drinking mug for $15 and up. You can also leave us a review on iTunes, send us a voicemail, and we hope to see you at one of our upcoming live shows in Cambridge on October 2nd, Washington, D.C. on November 7th, Chicago, Illinois on November 21st, and St. Louis, Missouri on December 19th. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 8, Snape Victorious, through the theme of anxiety. We are produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our associate producer is Chelsea Ersin. Our music, as ever, is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Ball. And we are part of Night Vale Presents. Thanks to Hong Yua for this week's voicemail. Thanks to Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and, of course, Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you all next week. And congrats to Stephanie Purcell for becoming the interim minister at Harvard University. Can you have it? Can you grab your soul away? You know that song? Yes, I'm Kate Bush singing Weathering Heights. (laughs) There's backlit smoke and I'm wearing a sort of white dress. I'm Joseph Fink, and I'd like to introduce you to I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats, a podcast about the shifting line between artist and fan. When I was a child, reading the authors that I loved and listening to the music that I loved, the thing I got from that is that feeling of of being understood somehow, and that weird connection, where it's not the person, it's not the stranger, it's the thing they've made that opens this space for self-reflection. I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.